This week on the show, we have a week with Plan 9 for you. We're exploring Swap on FreeBSD a little bit. We also look at how to create a FreeBSD package mirror using Bastille and Poudriere. More with jails in a setup tutorial, how to do a FreeBSD 12 VNet jail with ZFS, or the manual way creating a comfy FreeBSD jail using standard tools and more. This week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 389, Comfy FreeBSD Jails, recorded on the 3rd of February 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backups for the truly paranoid. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode of BSD Now. We have fresh material for you, like you were always waiting for during your run through the park or sitting at home. We have you covered with headlines like a week with Plan 9. Yep. Uh, so this is written by Steve Lord, and he says, I spent the first week of 2021 learning an operating system called Plan 9 from Bell Labs. This is a fringe operating system long abandoned by its original authors. It's also responsible for a great deal of inspiration elsewhere, kind of like Unix. If you've used the Go programming language, the slash proc file system, UTF-8 or Docker, you've used some Plan 9-inspired uh, features. This issue of the dork web dives into operating system internals and some moderately hard computer science topics. If that sort of thing isn't your bag, you might want to skip ahead. Normal service will resume shortly. So Plan what? And then they got to Glenda the Plan 9 bunny, their mascot there. Uh, Plan 9 from Bell Labs is an operating system designed by many of the same people responsible for Unix. It's more an exploration of ideas than a complete operating system. Much of Plan 9 made it into Google's ecosystem or the Go language or Windows or Linux and BSD and so on. I wanted to spend a few hours uh, a day over the course of a quiet week learning some of the bits of Plan 9 that interested them. So there are several things uh, in particular that interested them, including the everything is a file concept taken even further than you, know, you might think of that is mostly the case in Unix, but they took it even further in Plan 9. 9P, the distributed CPU, auth, and file system server, plumbing, Plan 9's programming environment, and the SAM and ACME editors. There are several Plan 9 distributions available. The most well-known is 9Front. I settled on Rich uh, Miller's Raspberry Pi port of Plan 9. While he saw Plan 9Front as a, or sorry, as 9Front as a fork, I'd consider significant novel innovation uh, versus uh, filling the base system or base use land with cruft as a key distinction between a fork and a distribution. Uh, semantics aside, Rich Miller's port features Wi-Fi support and the uh, lots of Pi-specific features. Miller's distribution is also the original Plan 9 fourth edition with some minor changes. It says, for the Raspberry Pi port, I added one architecture-dependent directory to the kernel source, but the portable parts of the kernel and everything outside of that kernel uh, is absolutely untouched fourth edition Plan 9 Bell Labs code. I have a ridiculous number of Raspberry Pis, several x86 machines, and a work-in-progress RISC V machine, all sharing a single root file system and source tree uh, out of Fossil plus Venti. So anyway, uh, why I didn't use 9Front? I started with 9Front as it looked the most active. I kept notes during the week uh, organizing a FQA 
uh, section. Uh, after working through uh, the drawing and GUI primitives, I had some notes to submit, but there was a picture that was less than appropriate. I didn't know how to speak. Uh, I didn't know who to speak to about the picture. Uh, so I asked uh, on Mastodon, one of the devs turned up, the conversation was less than constructive, so I decided to redo everything using a different distribution. The original version of this uh, issue mentions specifics. Uh, people posted it on aggregated sites and things got ugly. Okay, it seems like this guy had some personal interactions with some of the stuff. Anyway, so day one, New Year's Eve, they installed Plan 9 on a Raspberry Pi, download, unpack, and write the image. We'll have some fun with a keyboard, a three-button mouse, HDMI connection, and Ethernet cable. Before boot, I changed the Pi uh, cards command line.txt to, you know, no boot prompt, local user equals Glenda, and set up the NVRAM and all the other basic stuff. Uh, so he said, the first thing I noticed was the responsiveness on a Raspberry Pi 3B. It's quicker than Raspbian by a country mile, albeit with quirks. Following Quanstro's newbie guide is very helpful for that first 30 minutes of use. If you install Plan 9, make sure you take that with you. Uh, unfortunately, only my teeniest keyboard worked and it's uh, horrific to type on. I followed these steps to connect my Plan 9 CPU server across my network via draw term. I spent most of my day in remote sessions like SSH, Tmux, and VNC and RDP. Draw term didn't feel too different and that's what I'm, uh, than what they're already used to. I also looked at some other notes and articles and applying patches to enable OS themes and so on. So in day two, they got to know Plan 9's GUI a bit more. We have some more stuff. Day three, they looked at the security model and how the databases work. Uh, then they looked at day three, or uh, sorry, day four was namespaces and the 9P file system. Day five was plumbing, which looks interesting. Uh, then day six was Acme, which is one of the editors. Uh, day seven, they looked at the programming environment and they said their conclusion, uh, Plan 9 is as uh, filled with unpolished brilliance as uh, Mozart's Requiem. It's the Sagarda Familia of operating systems. Its creators left long ago, but people keep building on the scaffolding. If nothing else, it's a collection of fantastic ideas never intended for mass consumption. It is the holy mountain of operating systems. Is it a production-grade OS? Hell no. It's clunky, unfinished, and the file system model feels consistent but forced. Not everything needs to be uh, complete. Uh, as an explorator, uh, as an exploration rather than a product, I think Plan 9 is a success. Plan 9 is the Unix Kool-Aid uh, acid test brought to you by Bell Labs Merry Pranksters. Uh, Richard Miller's Plan 9 Pi distribution is a great way uh, to give a drawer-dwelling Raspberry Pi or two a new lease on life. Okay. Yeah, it's it's interesting how many cool ideas came from Plan 9. I think the first time I heard of Plan 9 was when a friend was playing with its um, content addressable file system. Uh, if you kind of think of it as a way to do deduplication or something. So imagine ZFS, but you address each block by its checksum. Oh. Like say the, the SHA-256 of the block. And so if you do that, then everything's automatically deduplicated. Yeah. But then how do you string those together into files? That, yeah. That... <laughs> well, I guess uh, the difference is that in the content addressable file system, you use the hash and it's of the whole file, not just of the block, right? So in ZFS, it would break your file up into 128K blocks by default. Whereas with this concept, it's literally just, you know, the hash of the whole file. Yeah. And this is the thing that's ported to Beehive, the 9PFS, or is that something No, uh, so 
part of uh, they use the nine PFS, the basically Plan Nine's lighter version of NFS, oh. a way to access a remote file system, and basically it's a way to share a directory from the host into the guest. Oh, okay, and it does gotcha. this at the VFS layer. It's yeah. very interesting, though. Hmm. Okay, we'll watch this space for any future plans from outer space. Um, but in the meantime, we are uh, doing a little bit of exploring uh, of Swap on FreeBSD over at clarasystems.com, where they have a nice article about free memory is wasted memory or how to make the best use of Swap. Yeah, you know, we often get the question, does it even make sense to have Swap in 2021? Or like, I'm looking at top and I see I have a whole bunch of free memory, but I'm also using a whole bunch of Swap. Why? Hmm. If I have free memory, why am I using Swap? and so on uh and so we asked none other than the person who would know uh mark johnston to write us uh an article explaining how it works why it works the way it does and why you probably want it to work that way you yeah know, just because some swap is in use doesn't actually mean uh your system's in a bad state right swapping is very natural for an operating system well in particular you can end up with the data being in swap and in memory oh so, so that <laughs> if you ever need the memory you can throw the copy of memory away knowing it's already in swap rather than having to wait. Uh, you know, if you don't swap until you need it, then you're going to make your system very slow when you need more memory. Whereas if you start swapping stuff out uh, before you need more memory, when you do need the memory, you can just reuse the existing memory and know, hey, we already have a copy in swap, it's fine. Uh, but meaning, if you end up not needing the more memory and coming back and needing that bit of RAM, you don't have to swap it in because you never actually swapped it out. You just preemptively copied it to swap. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so if I have over 128 gigs of memory, do I have to have 128 gigs swap space? Uh, depends. If you <laughs> want to do a crash dump, then probably yes. Mm. Okay. Let's say I'm not <laughs> because it's all then disk no. space, right? <laughs> That's Yeah. Uh, so in the end, uh, for swap, you don't need that much, uh, you know. A, a decent number of gigs, I'd like six or eight is usually fine. Uh, but if you do need to be able to handle a crash dump, you might actually want more. Okay. Yeah, that's a good uh, rule of thumb there. Okay. Yeah, so check out the article. There's plenty of interesting stuff about the whole paging subsystem. And it gets you a bit more appreciation for what the kernel does and memory and the disks. But you know, as usual, Mark does a great job of explaining it so that you don't you don't have to be well versed in virtual memory to be able to understand what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a good uh, you know introductory piece. Okay, we have news for you in the news roundup, of course like how to create a FreeBSD package mirror using Bastille and Poudrière. So we covered Bastille last week, but uh, it has cool features. Yep. So this is a, a how-to posted on Hack Academy or Hack Acad that just happens to be using Bastille as a way to do it. Oh, I see. So this is a short how-to for creating a package mirror. And on the jail host, you, um, they have, oh, they say Bastille is very active to make sure you switch to latest package mirror. Of course, get the latest version. Uh, so we edit your package, uh, etc package freebsd.conf file and add the latest to the URL at the end. Right. So uh, by default, it'll say quarterly and you'll want to change that to latest. Yeah. So that you don't have to wait <laughs> four months to get fresh stuff. And then you enable Basti using sysrc, Basti underscore enable equals yes to your rc.conf and 
create virtual network bridges like a cloned interface, LO1 in this case, and that's um, called Basti0 so that you can remember it. And then you, uh, of course, up this device. And with that, you create a pf.conf. So for this, you create a block policy, of course, a bit of scrubbing for the packets, uh, skip any packets on the loopback interface. But then you have a persistent table called jails. Uh, you nut on this. Uh, so this is the nut network through the first interface uh, IP address. Of course, by default, you should block in everything and then poke little holes in there in case you want to pass stuff out. So any traffic uh, should getting out, but not anything in unless you uh, allow it. That's the default firewall policy. And so this will prevent VNet networks access if the same subnet um, has any special um, anti-spoof settings. Okay, then next you add ZFS support. So check your zpool with zpool list. And for that, you just enable Basti ZFS underscore enable in sysrc. Oh, right. You use sysrc for a different file. This file is user local etc basti bastille.conf. And there you add this option. And another one called basti underscore ZFS underscore pool, which has your pool name. And then they create a, a jail.conf for pudrere and set up the devfs rules to allow things. And then they can use Bastille uh, to stand up that new jail. Mm -hmm. To bootstrap this you, and create a 12.2 uh, release in this case, give it an IP address and then run Bastille start. Then you can say Bastille package Pudriere installed and Vimtiny and Pudriere is also installed. So that's the two uh, tools. And then you do Bastille console Pudriere to go into your jail. And from there you can do the uh, final bits of configuration. Uh, in the Pudriere jail, you create a reference jail and download the points tree. Yes, so this is your fresh initial version. Uh, a dist file cache is also created under user local Pudriere slash ports slash dist files. A bit of Pudriere conf configuration. So you point this to um, your dist files cache and you set, in this case, a parallel jobs of four. You might want to tweak that later depending on the resources of the host. Um, then you configure a port to say, I want this specific option configured in Pudriere for this port, and this they do for the Wimtiny, but you can pick any other kind of port that you want, like open office. Um, <laughs> create the file containing the ports you'd like to build. So all these ports should go in there. And, and I guess this list is growing. Yeah, so instead of specifying them one at a time on the command line, you could make a, a list of all the ones so that you don't forget to keep rebuilding some of them. So they just, you know, they have uh, Vim console, Elasticsearch, mm. Python, rsync, iftop, pftop, nginx, mysql, etc. And then you can just say, hey, Pudrier, build all these. Yeah, like Pudrier does, and it chucks away and uh, spawns jails as it's needing. And with a couple of hints at the end, uh, if you want to make a jailconf or make.conf, you can simply add that to your options in user local etc pudrier.d and then give it the jail name dash make.conf. And so this will be picked up then. Yeah, there's a, a more complicated formula there. You can have a make.conf for each jail or each package or ports tree or each package set or combinations of those. I forget the exact order, but I think it's uh, jail-portstree-set. Uh, so if you have, uh, you know, if your ports tree is called default and then you have a set is also there. Um, so, you know, you can have an example to say, you know, set the allow building on an unsupported release for 12.1 uh, or whatever, or you can say for everything in the desktop set uh, of packages, 
add all the change all the default options to have x11 in them whereas on the server set default to not including x11 on everything mm, yeah you can also configure to let this jail run if you're on a production server that shares uh, its, its memory with other important stuff to limit that to let's say eight gigs and this is done by running bastille limits pudrier memory use 8g so um that's pretty cool so this will use the limits framework to make sure that it doesn't run over yep and then when it's done you'll have user local pudrier data packages your jail name dash port string name uh, optionally dash set name and if you just serve that up with a web server and point your package.conf to it, you can now have your machines use those packages. Mm -hmm. I should definitely take a closer look at Basti next time I am having a jail issue or want to run a jail. Very nice. Okay, um, next up, we have yet another tutorial for you. How to set up FreeBSD 12, a VNet jail with ZFS. Yep, this is over on the cybercity.biz or Nixcraft, but it's pretty straightforward. Create a ZFS dataset to contain your jails. Use BSD install to install a copy of the system under a dataset called full base jail. Uh, use FreeBSD update on it to make sure it's all up to date. Then snapshot it. You can send and receive or clone it. I think we talked uh, about the differences between those two uh, two or three weeks ago on the show. Uh, well, I actually mentioned both the send and the clone versions here now. And, you know, they, for example, take that uh, full base jail and make a copy, one for mail, one for triple W, and one for database, and one for VPN. Then you can just uh, make a resolve.conf for each of those, um, set your time zone for each of them, and uh, set up your different rc.confs in each one, install different packages, and uh, get going. They also show for the VPN one, for example, they show how to enable the BPF and TUN interfaces so that you can actually... Uh, create new interfaces within the jail uh, and so on. Oh yes, yeah, this is pretty straightforward. Yeah. And last but not least, this is really a jail episode today. Uh, we're having creating comfy FreeBSD jails using standard tools. So in case uh, framework is not your thing, you can definitely look this up. Uh, so this is over at Cogitations of Topi. Uh, Docker has stormed into software development in recent years, they write. While the concepts behind are powerful and useful, similar tools have been used in systems for decades. FreeBSD Jails is one of those tools, uh, which builds upon even older change root. To put it shortly, with these tools, you can make a safe environment separated from the rest of the system. Jails in FreeBSD is by no means a new tool, like introduced in 4.x, come on people, we're at 12 now or soon in 13. Um, but for reason or another, they haven't used them that often, which is a shame since they are so powerful. So they wanted to explore this concept in a concise and summarized manner. Uh, they have a section about templates. So ZFS datasets are a great way of creating templates for jails. Since after the creation of the template, you can easily create a new jail with ZFS clone or send and receive. Uh, typical people tend to divide jails to complete and service jails, where the former usually resembles a real FreeBSD system and the latter is often dedicated to applications or services. So they'll cover complete jails for now. And it's basically creating the dataset for it. So in this case, ZFS create uh, slash VM on Z root VM. Uh, they create also a temple sub uh, dataset and another one for the actual FreeBSD release 12.2 and then fetching that base distribution into it. 
and extracting it afterwards. So under slash VM slash TMPL 12.2, they have the latest 12.2 uh, sources at the time of this recording. Next, after that, we write a minimum viable etcrc.conf. So that only complains, uh, <laughs> contains, sorry, um, the send mail disabling uh, syslog flags to SS so that this doesn't block any other syslogging. Uh, that, that's coming from the jail and the cron flags capital j60 what's that for again uh it's something about which cron is executed capital j is how many uh concurrent builds to do at once oh right yeah okay so after that oh, sorry no the, for cron that's the jitter uh so that if a bunch of different jails are all configured to run something at midnight this will add 60 uh, a random number between 0 and 60 seconds to each one so they won't all run at the same time ah yes to so not overload any uh i don't know ntp servers or something yes sorry the the capital j was uh for cores is for pudrer for cron it's the jitter ah. <laughs> we're getting uh different options confused mm -hmm. but yeah cron is this different uh setting okay then we uh they create a periodic conf to uh, reference the original periodic conf in the system. So they do a bit of maintenance there and uh, status messages. Um, then you enable that uh, uh, ports in your jail and do that with uh, system updates to get the latest version of the templates applied and so that the jails are also having security and errata fixes. Lastly, you take a snapshot. In this case, it's called complete. And from there, you can always spawn new uh, jails either using clone or ZFS send and receive. And they explain the difference between the two, as well as doing a bit of uh, jail configuration in jail.conf. So that is, um, yeah, what, what typically jail management tools do for you or help you with. Uh, of course, you can make changes as well, but um, this manual stuff that we show here is basically what you have to do and what the management frameworks uh, take off you. Once this jail is up, you can start and jump stop them using pseudo service jail start or um, a specific one. And, and then to log into a jail, you run sudo jxec and then the jail name. And then you're in the jail and can do any kind of configuration for services that you want. To list finally all the running jails, use JLS, and there you have a listing with the ID, the IP address, the host name you gave it, and the path where that resides. So pretty straightforward. And a couple extra links to the Oracle docs. Oh, because of the ZFS clones, yeah. Uh, go to freebsd.org or to any other non-Oracle source for ZFS information because uh, that might yeah, their be... ZFS is yeah. quite different. Yeah. Cool. So that's nice. And what's also nice, if you would have all this configuration backed up, right? Yes. Uh, so head over to touchsnap.com slash BSD now and get set up to do backups. And actually, if you check under their testimonial section, they have a bunch of testimonials about other companies that are backing up their configuration and infrastructure, uh, including Pebble, uh, which I guess got bought by Google now, but uh, their infrastructure and so on was all backed up with uh, Tarsnap for a reason. Oh, interesting. But in addition to, you know, we talk about the same stuff about Tarsnap every week, I thought I'd talk a little bit more about uh, what metadata Tarsnap actually stores. Uh, so normal user data, when it's being backed up, is split up into chunks that are on average about 64 kilobytes before being compressed. The actual length of a chunk varies so that if a file is modified in the middle, the chunk boundaries will realign quickly on average after 1.6 chunks so that existing chunks can be reused. So instead of a static chunk size, it has a dynamic chunk size, which is... Uh, you know, this very 
complicated uh, diffing algorithm stuff that Colin came up with uh, in university. Uh, if you didn't know, Colin started at university at the age of 13 uh, before getting a doctorate from Oxford and uh, doing a whole, uh, I guess his doctorate was on specifically uh, the string matching and how to break this stuff up into those smaller bits. Yeah, string matching, data compression, and file synchronization. Mm -hmm. It also has a couple of examples, like if you always wanted to know how efficient is this deduplication that they do. So they have two examples, one for the hourly Tarsnap server itself. So they list there that um, it has almost three years worth of hourly snapshots, which adds up to a total of 69 gigabytes. But after deduplication or deduplicating these blocks of data, um, that drops to just 56.1 gigabytes, which is then compressed to meagerly 15.8 gigabyte and an amount which costs uh, $3.95 per month to store. The other one is an infrequent personal usage. So that is a personal email and documents backup, typically what I would do um, as a normal user, backing up my files. So that computer is only backing up half a gigabyte. The sum of all of that is, um, of the snapshots would give 14 megabytes, like email accumulates over time. But thanks to deduplication, these snapshots can be reproduced with only 961 megabytes, which is further compressed to 673 megabytes, which costs 17 cents per month. 17 cents. That's just awesome. Yep. Yeah. So the rest of the tar step metadata is basically a 512 byte tar header for each file. But after these uh, headers, you know, half a kilobyte per file, but after these headers pass through the deduplica deduplication and compression process, they generally come out somewhere between 50 and 100 bytes. Uh, so that gives you an idea of how much deduplication and compression you're getting. Then the metadata also contains a list of the uh, data blocks like which blocks belong to which files and that list is also deduplicated and compressed then a list of a list of lists of blocks <laughs> which are not deduplicated but so each list of blocks can hold up to about 1600 blocks and obviously when you have more than that you would have a list of those lists so that you can find them but then you have the archive name time command line which created the archive and that which is about another two kilobytes uh, before compression but all of that is switched down nicely and then is encrypted with your private key meaning that um, nobody can find out this information. They can't even see the name of your archive because that is uh, already encrypted. Yep. Tarsnap does keep a local cache, which keeps track of which blocks have previously been uploaded. Querying the server for each block would make it much slower and would reveal more information to the server about how your files are changing over time. By using that local cache, Tarsnap doesn't even know how your files are changing. Yeah, it's that uh, intransparent in this regard. Check out the tips section in the documentation part, which gives you information about how do I back up a database with Tarsnap, right? So that could be useful as well. Uh, there's plenty of other stuff on the website, but definitely make sure to create an account and uh, charge it up with like $10 bill or something for a start. And from there, you can start your backup journey. Yep. All right. It's time for feedback, of course, because people like this part of the show. So definitely they go back to this. Uh, if you have questions yourself or want to provide feedback to this part of the show, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv because otherwise this section will be very empty. The first one is Chris with a USB BSD variant uh, question of sorts. So let's look at that. So he writes, Alan, Benedict and JT, 
First off, thanks for a great show. Keep up the good work. Thank you. I have a quick question. Uh, is there a USB BSD variant that provides a bootable and persistent in-memory hypervisor operating system? I've been a fan of SmartOS's paradigm for years and think a free BSD option would be ideal. Closest I've found is Nomad BSD, but it appears to be a live desktop operating system. Perhaps it would be a good place to start. It depends uh, how much you want to keep in memory and so on. Um, likely something like MFS BSD might be an easier starting point, but it also depends how much you want to be what. Um, in general, for this hypervisor, the SmartOS type concept, you might just want a relatively regular FreeBSD install to a USB stick, and then just some startup scripts that start your Beehive VMs, or using a, a management framework like CBSD or something that does Beehive. Because you know, in general, you don't need to worry that much about the in-memory part of the hypervisor, because Beehive itself is going to be used enough that it'll stay in the buffer cache. And you know, do you really want to load the or waste another couple hundred megabytes of memory on? the rest of the FreeBSD OS that while executing the hypervisor is never going to be used. Like outside of say the if config command and the couple of tools used by the management framework to, you know, start new uh, VMs and uh, set up their networking, you don't even need the rest of the operating system to be in memory. And you can just depend on the, the OS buffer cache stuff to take care of keeping the tools you actually use in memory resident. So it might actually make more sense to just have uh, a regular FreeBSD install to a USB stick with, you know, very slim install of just FreeBSD with uh, your your Beehive management tool of choice. And then you can use all of the real disks as a ZFS pool or whatever to back the VMs. You know, in the end, I'm not that big of a fan of running the OS off of a USB stick. Most of my machines have some place where you can fit say a pair of, of normal SSDs, whether that's because, you know, I understand you want your primary storage to be for the hypervisor, not the OS, but usually you can have some other kind of, of storage in the machine uh, and use the OS of that. But there isn't a ready-made appliance, kind of like a Proxmox of FreeBSD. But yeah, if you want it to be memory resonant, something like MFS BSD is probably the right place to start. But I question whether you actually want that uh, and more likely you could, you know, save at least half a gig of RAM more for the VMs by not loading the whole OS into memory because most of the OS you're not going to need once you have Beehive up and running other than the Beehive tools and like DD and if config, I don't know that your, your hypervisor is going to need much more of the operating system. Yeah, right. So definitely invest the money, not in a cheap USB sneaker net device, but in a more stable storage that doesn't break uh, unexpectedly. Uh, but yeah, interesting concept. And I mean, it's it's basically rebuilding a VMware system like an ESXi. But as Alan said, it's better to run this on uh, stable storage and from the actual FreeBSD distribution, which also which also gives you updates to Beehive itself. So that way you get the patches. And right. Well, I think my main point was I understand wanting to have the OS separate from the storage. It's with ZFS, you really, there's not that big of a difference, but you know, you can do that. And if it's USB, that's fine. I just, I don't know that you actually want to try to make it all memory resident because 90% of the OS is not going to be used after boot. Uh, it's all going to be down to, you're going to want Beehive and if config basically. Yep. Okay. So uh, hopefully we gave you a couple of uh, insights there, uh, but definitely thanks for sending that in. Next is Jacob or 
yeah, Jacob, uh, with a host Wi-Fi through a jail question. So his original question was answered earlier, but it's still worthwhile to read because he has a little follow-up or an update there. So Jacob writes, Hey, y'all. I've been listening to your show for several months now and really enjoy it. Oh, glad to hear that. I've been a fan of BSD and Unix more broadly for most of my life, but I've only been using a Unix-like operating system Linux, usually Debian, for a couple of years. Unfortunately, can't use a BSD as a daily driver because none of them support my Wi-Fi chipset and I only have a laptop without an Ethernet port. However, I remember Alan mentioning uh, once or twice that he's heard of people running, uh, routing a network connection through a jailed operating system on FreeBSD and, if I understood correctly, using NetGuestOS to operate the actual Wi-Fi chipset. Despite my best efforts, I've been unable to find documentation on how this might be done, and for obvious reasons, I don't have enough experience to figure it out myself. So my question is, how would one go about routing a Wi-Fi connection through a jail to a host FreeBSD system? So it wasn't a jail, it was a virtual machine. Uh, so you could use Beehive or whatever hypervisor, but you have to do PCI pass-through of the device, like the Wi-Fi card, into the guest, and then that device is detached from FreeBSD and attached to, say, the Linux you're going to run in the guest or Windows, uh, and then you just configure the networking to route your host connection through the, the, the VM. Uh, so you can do that. It depends what Wi-Fi chipset you have. Almost anything that's Intel will work fine on FreeBSD. Atheros tends to work. Uh, it's mostly the Broadcoms that don't, but sometimes that's what your laptop has. And yes, you end up in this subpar situation. Yep. So on a related note, if anyone is willing to teach someone with no systems programming experience and only intermediate knowledge of C, know how to write Wi-Fi drivers for FreeBSD, send them my way because I'd love to be able to do that. Yeah, I think the, the biggest problem there is you generally need access to documentation and so on from the device manufacturer in order to be able to write a driver. Uh, it's not just a matter of writing the C code, it's actually of having to make the C tell the device what to do, and you have to know what register does what to be able to do that. Yeah, how to make it sing and dance. That's uh, a secret uh, to many of the developers themselves. So they, I mean, they can try certain things out, but there are so many registers and possibilities that without documentation from the vendors it's kind of impossible or just doesn't get you Very difficult the performance that you would expect trying to reverse engineer it from somebody else's driver and so on it's yeah. very nasty so yeah uh, he writes that uh, never mind from the update uh, to this uh, this was answered in an episode i'd missed okay no worry uh, although, if you know any Zen masters, that is, people with the patience to teach a newbie like me, to teach me Wi-Fi driver development, I would still be interested. So, is there anything in the BSD um, book about, from Joe Kong, about... Uh, that one's about driver development. I don't know if it's specifically about Wi-Fi, but most of the concepts are the same. Uh, um, I don't know. I think, in particular, if we have any Wi-Fi developers looking to mentor someone, they probably... Uh, should spend that effort on somebody who's uh, going to be able to pick it up quicker. We need to uh, multiply yeah. quickly. We have very few, so we'd like to get more, and then we can keep trickling it down to people who are starting from further and further away from already a driver developer, and you know, someday have many of them. That'd be great. Mm. You could offer helping to test patches that they came up and test them on your devices that don't have a driver yet so you can provide feedback and maybe this way you get a little bit more into the source code for this kind of driver um so look at the quarterly status reports there's a couple of things in there uh, at least in one item about the latest uh, efforts in the wi-fi stack so maybe you can test some patches there and this way you get into it but definitely i like the efforts that you want to do there and 
uh, yeah, good luck with uh, your efforts. And I like that people are offering their help. And it's really appreciated because we can never have enough people doing this. Okay. Uh, then we have, uh, last but not least, uh, Jordan with new two versus updating existing tools. Ah, new tools versus updating existing ones. Okay. And that goes like the following. BSD people like to pick on Linux for writing a new tool instead of updating an existing tool. There are cases where both Linux and BSD have done this. For example. Yeah, sometimes it depends. Like a lot of it is you don't want to break the old tool. And you don't want to have three different tools that do the same thing. But, you know, it's never, nobody ever gets it exactly right. Yeah, it's it's continually evolving. And as uh, systems change, um, the tools change with them. But yeah, so here's the example. The getEnd tool can be used to do DNS queries using the POSIX standard system interface, as opposed to dig and drill, which use custom DNS query implementation. This makes them useful for debugging DNS servers, but not programs on your computer that you use uh, the POSIX interface to query DNS. Yeah, it's, it can be interesting to see that sometimes like uh, dig and drill don't consider the host file, whereas the normal POSIX interface does. And sometimes you're like, why do I get a different answer from the host command than I do from the dig command? Yeah, it's also historic how these tools uh, were developed back in the day and how they were rewritten or have added features over time. But yeah, uh, getend uses the deprecated getHostByName function to query DNS. A while back, Linux added support for the modern POSIX getADRinfo interface to its getend, while NetBSD added a new program, getADRinfo. This is imported into the other BSDs. Uh, I want to update NetBSD's getend to support the modern getAdderInfo. Uh, but I don't have a lot of experience contributing to BSD base. Can getend and getAdderInfo share implementation? Are there examples of similar programs that share code in base currently? Yeah, so like the actual syscall or the interface is going to be from libc, right? The getAdderInfo uh, and get by name and so on is all going to be in libc and that both can link to it. Uh, I think a good example, there's like a bunch of different examples of this. Um, one is the tool in FreeBSD MD5 that does the hashing of a file. It turns out it's it's one source file, one program that is MD5, uh, SHA-1, SHA-256, SHA-512, Skeen, and a bunch of the other hashes are all the same file. Uh, and they're when they're installed, they're just hard links to the same one copy of the file. And then by when you run it, it looks at what the name of the file you ran was and changes behavior uh, to do one thing or the other based on what name it was you used to invoke it. Uh, so that's a common way to basically have one set of code uh, for, say, both getEnd and getAdderInfo that then would say, if you called me as getEnd, then I'll do it the old way, and otherwise I'll do it the new way. Hmm. Yep. Uh, so that's very common. Uh, the other ways are to have the library or just to have the same C file that gets linked into both programs. Yeah. But so I think the hard link style is probably the right answer for the get end versus get adder info. Uh, is you just make one program that is both and switches between the two types based on what name it is invoked with. Oh, like the ping and ping six one? Yeah. Uh, like ping and ping six have just been updated on FreeBSD to do the same thing as well. Mm -hmm. That's a good example. There's a bunch of other ones. I think RM and unlink, are they the same on yeah. FreeBSD or are those separate? I think they're separate. I think they're the same. Uh, but there are a lot of different tools in FreeBSD in the BSDs that are two different names and it's the same binary. Yeah. Uh, and it changes what it does based on which name you call it with. I'm just blanking on additional ones off the top yeah, of my head. Yeah, I think a propo uh, and, and something else. I don't know about that one. But I, I do know the MD5 ones because I spent a lot of time adding 
extra algorithms to that MD5 command. Mm, yeah. Uh, so I happen to know that's how that one works. Um, yeah, it's a common practice, especially when yeah. you want to make sure that the old users of the old tool still can run the old tool while the new tool is being introduced or tested in the system. And then with the next release or some deprecation time, you can just switch over because they both point now to the to a new tool. Uh, yeah, so I think that hopefully answers your question there. I, I also like that people are now volunteering their time to to test or to develop stuff and contribute to the project. So yeah, that's... and in, in particular, you know, that's not an overly complicated project. It's a good, it's a very good first project, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, so let us know how it goes. And, uh, you know, if you get it to the point of, of having a review for FreeBSD, uh, tag me and I'll try to help make sure the right people pay attention to it. Yeah, so that's the necessary first step. And that way you get the feedback and some things to, to change or the praise and the accolades for it. I think that is pretty much all we have for you today and this week. Uh, thank you for listening as always. Uh, let us know how you um, get any future uh, episodes down or how you like the overall content there to feedback at bsdnow.tv this is your feedback address uh, we're also live while we record this on twitch it's twitch.tv slash bsdnow uh, twitter we pull out any uh, episodes that are just released on twitter.com slash bsdnow 